Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast. My name is Anda. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Notch. Hi, everyone. I'm Bar, the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo. And together, we are two data nerds and entrepreneurs who decided to start a podcast to feature today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Category Makers and Wall Breakers podcast the podcast that interviews some of today's most innovative and influential data and analytics leaders. I'm Anda, the CEO and co-founder of Notch, the content intelligence platform, and I'm here with Bar. Hi, everyone. I'm Bar, CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, the data reliability company. Um, We're thrilled to be here today with our guest, Spencer Skates, um, CEO and co-founder of Amplitude, the industry-leading digital product analytics company. Really excited to learn more about what that means. Thank you so much both for the introduction. Really appreciate it. I just, it's fantastic to get uh, three uh, leaders and category leaders in the data space together. And so it's, it's going to be a lot of, you know, we've all spent a lot of time thinking about this problem. So it'll be a bunch of fun. Agreed. So welcome to the show. Um, and let's jump in. I would love to actually hear, let's call it your origin story. Like how did you become interested in data and analytics? Yeah, absolutely happy to talk about that. I mean, it's it's uh, we actually started out in 2011. I was only I was working with one of my co-founders at the time, Curtis Liu, and we didn't know anything about anything about building a company. We just wanted to get something out there that people used. And I we just graduated from college in in 2010. And the first thing that we worked on was this company called Sonalite Text by Voice, which was a voice recognition app that allowed you to talk to your phone hands-free and send and receive text messages. So this is like an early version of Siri before Siri even came out. Um, you know, we actually called ourselves like Siri on steroids and um, we did Y Combinator with that. Um, you know, it was a really, really cool piece of technology. Um, and the thing that we were constantly struggling with when building Sonalite was a deep understanding of how people were using our product and what we could do to make improvements to it. Um, and so we wanted to know, for example, how important was voice recognition accuracy to the success of a user of the product long-term? Would that make them keep coming back? Would that, you know, did it not really matter? Um, so we ended up spending all this time, probably about half our time building a data pipeline and analytics system to help us answer these questions. I mean, we built like uh, this early version where we stored all this data in a SQLite database, and then we kind of sliced and diced it a, a million different ways. Um, and one of the things we found out, as it turned out, it mattered a ton uh, how accurate your voice recognition was. I think it was something like if you had a successful first recognition event on the first time you used the app, you were twice as likely to stick around a long-term as a user. And so that gave us a phenomenal North Star because that told us, hey, if we improve this by 1%, we know we will uh, increase our long-term retention of the user base by 1% as well. Um, and so that allowed us to invest quite a bit in that. Um, and one of the interesting things was that no other company we talked to was able to answer these same sort of questions at the time. And they you know, so we showed our the data that we had to tons of other uh, companies in Y Combinator or other startups that we knew, um, and they're like, "Wow, this is amazing sort of insight. I really want to get this. Um, how do I get it?" And we're like, "Well, we're building the Sonalite thing. You know, we don't 
really, uh, you know, we're not really focused on this, but uh, that's really interesting. And so after a year of doing Sonalite, um, you know, the voice recognition technology was was uh, just a little bit too early at the time. Still is, it still is unclear if it'll take off. Um, you know, we ended up shutting that company down. Um, and when we were looking at what to work on next, it was really clear there was a massive opportunity uh, to help people with data, uh, to help people understand how users interacted with the product. And it, it was kind of mind blowing because our expectation was that oh, this would already be a really built out piece of infrastructure and there'd be a whole ecosystem around this. But what was happening at the time was that all the analytics products, so, you know, Anda, you mentioned Google Analytics being one of them, you know, Adobe is another one. They were all very marketing focused. And so they were geared towards helping you answer questions about the marketing journey. So what sources of users were driving, uh, were, were driving traffic to my website you know, what pages are the most common? How many page views do I have? All these questions, which are very marketing centric, but none about uh, that could actually answer, hey, what's the impact of using a feature on the long-term success uh, of, of a customer in your product? Um, and so, you know, and, and Facebook had came out with this very famous study at the time where they found that the number one predictor of long-term engagement was how many friends you added. So if you added at least seven friends, you were much more likely to be an engaged user long-term than if you had it. And that was kind of the magic. It was, that was the most compelling thing you could do. It was better than filling out your profile or adding a bunch of photos or using some of the apps. It was all about adding friends. Um, and we said, hey, every single company is going to want um, is, is going to want a um, is going to want these same sort of insights. And no one is building it. And you know, we're a bunch of uh, you know, computer science nerds that, you know, thought they could outbuild anyone. And so we started Amplitude and that was in 2012. Uh, we launched the company in 2014, been growing since we went public uh, last year in, in 2021. Um, yeah. And then, and then just growing, growing. And, and it's just crazy to see. I think the, the bet that we made was, I think one was that the internet was shifting from a, what I think of as a marketing centric internet that's very based around content and you know marketing journeys to what I think of as a product centric internet where it's around applications, you have a login, you're coming back multiple times. It's about a user journey with thousands or tens of thousands or millions in some cases uh, of steps. And it was clear to us that you'd need totally different infrastructure uh, to run that. And so that's what we, um, you know, that, that's why we thought we had a great opportunity uh, with an amplitude. Uh, the other thing, just to get back to your, one of your other questions, Anda, on how the space of, we didn't call ourselves digital optimization um, uh, at the start. We actually started by calling ourselves, we started with mobile analytics actually, because we're like, oh, these are about mobile apps. And then we brought in that to mobile and web. And then what we realized what was actually going on is actually about product analytics. Um, and then we took this detour and calling it product intelligence for a short amount of time. And then just last year, as part of going public, you know, we realized it's not just about the product team. Um, it's about all functions with the company. And so we, you know, uh, changed it to digital and digital optimization. We think of it now, digital optimization as being the next step after digital transformation. So digital transformation has been the buzzword over the last decade where it's like, how do we bring our business online uh, and make that move? And then the question is, well, what comes after you transform your business? Well, you need to optimize it. And so that's what, uh, you know, that, that, that's the core of what we do and, and how we explain uh, what Amplitude is. Um, but the, the, the short of it is, you know, it's all about our secret sauce from day one is all about been 
helping you understand that end-to-end customer journey. So how can you understand the thousands or tens of thousands of things that your users are doing within your product and stitch them all together to make sense of it so that you can figure out what's valuable, what's not, what users like, what they don't, um, and how to ultimately build a a better product. That's awesome. What a cool story. Um, Thanks for walking us through that. Um, Just curious, kind of double-clicking onto the, the category creation side of things, obviously kind of naming it and positioning it is a huge part, but, you know, we think a lot about sort of what it takes to create a category um, at Monte Carlo. And I think in general, you know, the data space is such an exciting one, which like there's, there's so many, there's a lot of change, which um, introduces opportunity for new categories to be created. Um, But obviously like a lot goes into that. And, 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 you know, I think you all have been very intentional about it. Just curious, like what was, um, maybe if you can talk a little bit about that journey in particular, did you sort of, you know, start the company thinking that you start this category? Uh, you know, how has that changed over time, if at all? Yeah, I, th- I think we've always, I mean, we've been through so many changes in what we call it. And we've, you know, candidly, we've we've struggled to really come up with a really concise way to convey it um, that's really clear and that someone can hear it and be like, you know, understand exactly what it means. Um, and so, you know, and, and, and that's reflected in, you know, how many times we change the positioning and the story at the core of it has always been, let's help you understand the end to end user journey in a product context. And that's what our bread and butter been. And that's where, uh, we've always been the strongest. Um, I, I think it's just about how do you tell a story that both reflects where the company is at today, as well as where it's going. And the on the category side, you know, that that's that's part that, you know, frankly, you know, I think we're still very much working on, you know, no one comes and looks up digital optimization on Google and then goes to our site and be like, oh yeah, I want digital optimization amplitude. It's kind of a story we explain after the fact. Um, you know, so we've gone back and forth, you know, you, our website used to say digital optimization. Right now, if you go to it, it says number one in product analytics, um, because that's, you know, we found the simplest way to, to clearly communicate. And then we can introduce all this other stuff. Uh, on top of it afterwards, but the, the storytelling is always a um, always a big thing. You know, the 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 comparison that um, I, I've talked to our board quite a bit about is uh, with Okta, where Okta for the longest time was just seen as this. You know, hey, you're just single sign on. You know, who cares? Two factor auth, like that's not a big deal. It's a commodity thing. Tons of companies do that. You know doesn't really matter. Now they're this like identity cloud and, you know, they do identity, not just, and they do identity for employees. And now they're trying to do customer identity and, you know, their whole identity space um, is is a whole thing. And so, but that was, you know, that's been very much, you know, over a decade in the making on their part um, with Todd and team there. And it took them a very, very long time to get perceived as anything beyond, you know, Hey, we're just, we're just single sign on. And so I think, I think it's kind of the same thing for us. It's like, yes, we do this product analytics thing and we do it very well, but the real value is in unlocking this data about the end to end customer journey for all your company. I, I mean, one of the things, and I'm jumping ahead a little bit here is that I think the very best companies, and we see this, I have so many examples from tech to non-tech and otherwise will give access to data on the customer journey to uh, more of the company. So the more functions and the more people you have looking at and understanding what people are doing in your product, the more successful they'll be. And the exciting thing with us is we get to sit at the core of that in a lot of different ways. um, And we can help them do that in a self-serve way and be very sophisticated about that and, you know, kind of train, uh, you know, 
lots of different users, whether they're technical or non-technical on understanding that data. And that's the value kind of at the end of the day that, that we bring. And so for us, it's just about how do we communicate that uh, really, really clearly to the, 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 you know, the world around us. I think, I think the most frustrating thing, and I'm not sure how much you guys run into this, but is that the data is like, people don't know about amplitude. Um, and so a lot of times when we're talking to a customer, after we spend some time, like we'll always do a great job in the sales process in terms of getting someone to come on board to amplitude. Like we have no problem with explaining why we're valuable all of that, but just having them hear about us and hear that, Hey, I'm the solution to this big thing that you're dealing with, with uh, driving revenue through your product. Um, that's the part where it's like, um, you know, there's still a big gap uh, for us to cover today. I have so many questions following up to everything you just said. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try to hit you with like three all at, all at the same time. Um, first one, super curious about what your thoughts are on I think it was called Flurry. Do you know what I'm talking yes, about? Yes, Flurry, the original mobile analytics uh, product. Yeah, I talked yes. about Flurry. We were the OGs. We Flurry. looked at them. We're like, man, these guys have nailed mobile analytics. Yeah. Well, I know. That, I think they sold to like Yahoo, was it? Or they sold to someone. They sold to Yahoo for 300 million. Yeah. Right. And that was kind of the first. It, I, I remember because we were looking, we were building mobile app at the time and we had the same issue and we were trying to figure out basically between Flurry and Mixpanel who we were going to go with, but this was, I don't know, 2013 or so. So you hadn't actually probably built, built your product then. So, I mean, it, it, there were some solutions. What was it about those solutions that didn't stick? And what was it about what you built that did stick? That's my first one. Then I'll go to the other ones. Yeah. So, so Flurry was really interesting and, and Mixpanel were both really interesting. Both of those companies in particular, you know, we talk about Google analytics and, and Adobe now, but both of those two in particular were, honestly, probably the closest to what we ended up becoming. The challenge that they had, so they could tell you what was going on. So they could say, hey, this many people are doing this, or this many people have used this feature in your app. But connecting multiple points together along the journey, they really struggled with. And so if you wanted to figure out how important, so that question I went to at the start, which is how important was the voice recognition accuracy to your long-term success as a user that you couldn't get that? From, from Flurry, you can get it from Mixpanel, you can get it from, from anything else. I was talking to one of our customers at Amplify last week, Under Armour, and they had this amazing story where one of the things, so they have these shoes which connect your, um, which send track data about how you run, and they use that data to give you real-time coaching and feedback on how to improve your running performance. One of the things they found with Amplitude is that if you use that feature, you would run on average 7% faster as a runner from the coach, which is just like huge. You know, if you're, if you're an, if you're a athlete and you're trying to get better at your craft and what you do, like they can now actually draw a direct line from using their product to becoming a better athlete, which is just absolutely wild. Um, you know, no other, no other apparel company can do anything close. And, but to get that sort of insight, you need to be able to tie those two things together. Okay. Well, give me the group of users who are faster runners. Give me the group of users who, and let me compare that against people who did or didn't use this coaching feature. Um, and let's see how those two groups compare. Um, and that was not something any of these products could do natively out of this box. We call that behavioral cohorting at Amplitude, which is grouping mm -hmm. your users based on the, the, what they do. Um, and so that was kind of a very early innovation early on that we said, hey, we're going to, we know how to do this sort of understanding of your user journey much better. Uh, the, the second thing I want to call on that is I'll actually give Mixpanel a lot of credit. Mixpanel pioneered a lot of the space um, in that they, 
they actually were the one of the early ones to come out with um, deeper funnel analysis and deeper retention analysis. And that was mm-hmm. kind of their innovation to the space. Uh, unfortunately, for a bunch of different reasons, they didn't continue that. They, they kind of stopped there and they didn't go deeper with the analytics. They tried to do a lot of different things. They tried to make analytics for finance teams. They tried to do this kind of suite of products when it was too early for them. Um, and so they ended up making some strategic missteps, but uh, yeah, it was like, you know, hey, we we knew we we're the only ones that could do this sort of analysis at the time and that convinced us that there was room to, to be better than anyone else. That's a great answer. I, I was going to move into the the follow-up question I had around the category creation because um, it's, it's kind of an interesting marketing question. I know there's going to be a bunch of marketers listening to this and a bunch of entrepreneurs listening to this. I think sometime in the last two years, um, a bunch of us entrepreneurs decided that category making was important. There was a book on this, right? Like if you make a category Play bigger. Yeah, exactly. That's the one. That's the one. I remember listening to it and I was like, oh my God, hundred percent. Of course, we just have to invent some words and then talk about them on LinkedIn. It's going to be great. But at the end of the day, uh, you know, kind of similar to you, we we came back to what's the core pain point and how do we fit into that? And then we can, you know, upsell and essentially deliver on the vision what, kind of bit by bit. So I'm curious, are you kind of jaded about this category creation idea? Have you found it to be as, you know, big as as Play Bigger makes it sound? And I'm curious, Barb, what do you think as well? Yeah, I, I think it's it's been interesting. I think digital optimization was a huge step forward for us in clarifying that, hey, we're not just for the product team. Um, but I think there's still a lot, frankly, we're fig- figuring out about the story. I don't I don't think we've nailed in terms of how to, like no one's searching for it. Um, you know, when you first say digital optimization, people are like, what the hell does that even mean? Um, and so there's still a lot of work I think we have to do on. And then there's also, I, I think the other thing about it is that I think one of the mistakes that, people make on it and that we did too, is that you think it's the answer to everything about your story. You know, one of, one of the things we we're doing for a while is like, we'd send people when they first sign up on Amplitude, like a white paper on digital optimization. And it's like, that's so far removed from like what they're thinking about, and what they're trying to sell. They're just like, Hey, just give me this report. I want this report. <laughs> yeah. I need to hear this whole story around what digital, you know, optimization. I'm not ready for that. Um, turns out digital optimization is a great story. Once you're much deeper in the relationship, um, yeah. it's, it's been a great story for the investor community to help them break down what we do. But um, and so understanding which story applies to which time and place for what an audience do, an audience. Yeah. And so I th- and frankly, that's still something that we are working on in a big way on Amplitude is, is how we do that. I think what we've seen is when someone buys an Amplitude, they buy in like really big. You know, we have, you know, at the end of last year, we had twenty nine million dollar customers which for a company of our size and stage, you know, at, at around 200 million a year in revenue is just phenomenal. Like, you know, it, it just shows the, that like, you know, there's a ton of value that that's quite deep here, but getting someone to that point can be a, a, a big challenge. And so the question is, what's the right story to tell them early on about who you are and how you fit in and how do you meet them where you're at, where they're at, you know, a lot of, so they're going to be searching for product analytics, or they're going to be searching for, you know, growth or retention or things like that. Um, and then how do you start with those things that are already familiar with and then build up to this kind of bigger picture of, of um, you know, the, the customer journey over time? So, yeah, I, I would say, now, all that said, I think there are companies that, you know, Okta was one example. Qualtrics was another example that I think has done a phenomenal job. I mean, you know, Qualtrics, you know, talk about a commodity product, you know, surveys, right? Even less technical stuff there than, than SSO. Um, but they did a great job of, of really positioning this experience, creating a great, you know, experience management and creating a great customer experience and focusing on that and telling the story that's much bigger. 
Um, and so I, I'd say, you know, frankly, at Amplitude, we're still working through that. We, you know, I think we've made a great, one of the things we realized is that we're not just for product teams. So we came out with a bunch of marketing analytics tools at um, Amplify last week. Um, and we realized that the teams that most use us successfully, actually, it's not about the product team. The product team is the one who brings us into the company, but in the great companies that use us, if you look at Atlassian, if you look at an Intuit, um, you know, if you look at Burger King, you know, it's like, uh, if you look at NBC, it's like you get product, you get engineering, you get design, you get marketing, you get a bunch of the support some, a bunch of times, you get customer facing functions. Um, it's about getting broad-based adoption um, among multiple functions within a company that, that really makes you successful. So we're still working on how do you take someone through that journey and how do you uh, tell them that story. And so we are by no means, we're, we're early days in this, on this category stuff. And so I'd say, you know, there's been value in it, um, you know, but it's still TBD. Yeah. A lot of that resonates. I mean, I think we're definitely, you know, in the early days of, of um, category creation, if you will, on, on our end, I think one of the kind of big learnings for me is um, we really, you know, it's easy to fall into the trap of thinking that it's about us and what words we like and what words we think we want to use and what's the appropriate word. Um, but actually like customers don't really give a shit about us or the category. <laughs> no, they don't. They don't. That's they exactly just, right, Bar. Yeah, they just don't. And so actually like the category that we're pioneering is data observability. And I was actually vehemently against that word. I was like, who can pronounce observability? Observability. How do you even spell it? <laughs> exactly. It's like the worst choice. I thought it was the worst choice, but, um, yeah, I try to push back, but our customers just loud and clear use observability and way smarter people than me on, on my team. Like, uh, Molly, our, our head of communications and brand is like, look, this is it. This is what customers want. Um, and so I think that that was one, you know, kind of like core lesson for us. I think the other was also in the process of category creation, whatever it is, again, it's not about us. It's not about our problems. It's not about our tech. It's not about our product, actually. It's about our customers and what pain point they have and what value they want to get out of anything and how their lives are being made easier. Um, and so for us, we think, you know, we try to think a lot more about that with like a customer first mindset and just remember that like, yeah, literally they just don't give a shit about it. They don't. And it's in a good way, right? I, I'm in such violent agreement with you, Bar. You know, I, I that like you got to start with the customer problem and what it is you're solving from them and meet them where they're at. Um, you know, I, I do think stepping back, I, I think the value of the category story can be is where and what is the movement you are connecting your company to that's bigger that people are excited to be a part of. I think, you know, actually one of the really early ones I think did this really well was Zora. Like Zora is a product, you know, it's, it's um, you know, there's good and there's bad to it. But one of the things that they have just absolutely been super deliberate about beating the drum on a subscription economy. Hey, we're moving your subscription economy. You need to change that. So it's like, okay, cool. That's a really clear narrative everyone can attach to. And so I, I think that's, you know, frankly, what we're still trying to figure out, um, you know, here, here, here at Amplitude, um, which is what's that really clear narrative that, that you attach to that, you know, everyone can be like, okay, yeah, that, that makes sense for how it is that you fit in. I think some of the examples we discussed as to like the successful category makers, um, I actually think they played into demand that was already there versus created demand. And I think sometimes founders conflate creating a category with creating demand. And when you're trying to create a category and demand, then it's like a very no, you can't do it. No way. Yeah. spiral, right? Whereas if the demand's already there, then it's really just an exercise in packaging as to how you're going to feed into the pain. Um, so anyway, maybe that's kind of one of the 
insights to take away as I was listening to you guys. That's what came to mind. Um, well, my, my short would be for any listeners, don't listen to me on this. We're still working on it. Yeah. <laughs> I'd love to hear yeah. your, I'd love I to guess hear don't your listen story. to any of us on this because we're all still working on it. Um, so, uh, Spencer, you talked a lot about how these different teams are kind of coming together uh, and using the same data. And Bar, we were chatting last week with Kara from LPL, and she was talking about how, you know, it's, it's kind of constant work to bring all these different teams together on her end, kind of on the inside, on the customer side of Amplitude, essentially, um, to really create that data communication how it sounds like that's one of your tailwinds that you kind of put the, put your product into into the product team and then it kind of spreads out do you see it as being a headwind at all within certain organizations where they're just these silos that are difficult to to break oh absolutely um so we we had our, so we had our customer advisory board last week at amplify and i asked them this question which is what we asked was like who's the ultimate buyer for amplitude you know, who is it that owns it? Is it product? Is it, you know, we talk a lot about product, but is it actually product? A lot of times we're seeing it roll up to engineering or data. And one of the things they said was like, you know, Spencer, you're actually asking the wrong question because it's not, the product team isn't yet, yes, a lot of times it'll roll up to engineering or data, but what makes Amplitude successful is if you get it rolled out across multiple functions and you get the buy-in. So one, a customer actually was like, oh, you got to get the CEO convinced, which I'm like, <laughs> that feels like, that feels like, that feels like really hard and too much of a stretch, um, you know, if it requires that level. But the, the point they were making, which I thought was really good, was that you need a change agent who comes into a company and who says, hey, we view giving customer data in a self-service way to the rest of the organization as a priority for how we're gonna approach building a product. And if you get that, then you will do insanely well. Now, if you don't, and you have the silos that you're talking about, Ando, where you know, your marketing teams running off the marketing data and the product teams running off the product data and the engineering teams running off the engineering data, then it kind of doesn't really matter. Like you're not gonna get any sort of buy-in for, for what it is that that Amplitude does uh, because you know, it's not really, like you can't go to a single function and say, you know, yes, product will often, be the ones that tends to be on the bleeding edge of this and we'll have the more sophisticated questions, we'll start pulling you in. But if you don't get buy-in from engineering, and we see this with a lot of our accounts, then it doesn't matter. Like you can't, you need to get the organization bought in that we're gonna do self-service data across multiple functions. And then that's when you get engineering to, to implement and that's when you get data to enable you. Um, that's when you get you know traction across lots of these different silos. And so what we've seen is when you have a change agent, um, then that will happen successfully but when you don't do it, doesn't matter. Like you can sell all day and, and if someone's not trying to drive that change. Like we were talking to uh, Burger King, um, this guy named Tim who runs the, the uh, who's a VP who runs the marketing business in the UK. And actually there, we actually roll up to marketing, you know, and it's kind of this craziest thing. It's like, would you even expect? Um, but they're very religious about, hey, we want marketing's job is not just, hey, get you more leads. Marketing's job is how do we get the right type of customers? Like they had this big insight that, a huge portion of their customer base in the UK is actually vegan, right? You wouldn't expect it going to Burger King, you know, having a lot of vegan customers, but actually really, really big deal for them. They actually have a specific group of customers who is very interested in their vegan options. And so they actually were able to segment out their customer base and give those people custom offers and make sure they had products for them and all this other wonderful stuff to really do a great job of engaging them. And as a marketing team, they wouldn't have figured that out 
unless they were looking, if they were just thinking about like, Hey, how do I get more app downloads or more people, you know, using this coupon, like they would have never thought about their customer base in that way. And so even though it was the marketing team, it was like, Hey, they were concerned about how does our role impact the entire customer journey. And so we've been really successful there as a result. And so, you know, again, so going back to my observation is that it's not so much about what function, you know, or what role that you sell to. It's more about, do you have a change agent who is very interested in breaking down the data silos across the org, in which case then, you know, we're the perfect fit for them. I, w- I was going to say that <clears throat> I was talking to one of our customers um, and she's, she's a growth marketer. And I asked her, what's your number one kind of waste of time item? And she said, um, well, there's the growth marketing team, which I run. And then there's the product growth team, which someone else runs. Oh, yeah. Not only are there two separate data sets, but they're constantly kind of fighting for who owns what. Um, and I don't know if the, if the market is mature enough where things have kind of settled down. Like, it doesn't feel like this is an outlier. It feels like this is kind of the kind of what is what's going on today where Everyone's just redrawing lines um, and what goes where in in real time. I know that you guys see kind of a a merging of product and marketing, but do you see a merging under like one leader or do you see a merging of the data flows into a chief data officer? Um, Yeah. Tell us what you're saying. Yeah. So I I think the most successful companies, so, you know, I mentioned Atlassian and Intuit, um, you know, PayPal and Dropbox, you know, all of whom we do a lot of work with and who are on, really on the bleeding edge, they have a big investment into the data function. They said, hey, we're going to invest a lot into data. We need to make it self-serve, accessible across the business. We're going to pay, we're going to spend a bunch on the infrastructure. We're going to make sure it's governed well. We're going to make sure it's implemented well. And in those cases, I think that's when you see really outsized success. Um, you know, I think it, like Atlassian, Atlassian is a really interesting example because we were initially brought in there by one of the mobile products. The mobile team wanted to use us. And then we expanded to a few other products from there. And then what happened was the central data science team said, we are up to, we are being overwhelmed by way too many requests for our data science team just to answer really basic questions like, oh, what's this conversion rate in this funnel? Or how many people use this feature today? Or um, how did my latest release do? And they realized, hey, we need to get a self-serve way of doing this. And that's when they said, oh, wow, this other team's already using Amplitude. Maybe we can standardize on this. And so they pulled us out from just being used by those few teams to saying, hey, we're going to standardize this across all of Atlassian, all our products. We're going to pipeline all the data into Amplitude. um, And we're going to go ahead and drive success here. Um, and you know, that's been one of our, our most fruitful relationships and like they've, they've, they're just one of the, I mean, they're one of the poster childs for product like growth and that initiative though, that came from a data, a centralized data team who said, Hey, we're going to go, we're going to go drive this. And so I, I think, you know, typically the maturity journey we see in customers is they will start out. And very much like you said, where they'll have marketing, which will have their own analytics, and they'll product that they'll have their own analytics, and they'll have a bunch of these different functions. And, you know, they'll be somewhat competitive, collaborative, but also competitive and, you know, not clear, okay, what's the source of truth. And then they'll say, okay, we need to make a big investment in data across the organization um, to get a standardized view for everyone, enable everyone on this, and then they'll centralize it. Um, and that's where we see the most mature companies and the most successful companies uh, leveraging data. 
Um, yeah. And, and that, that, that's, you know, that's, that's not a, like, that's a very typical kind of op story where it's like, you have teams kind of doing your own thing. And at some point you realize it's a, it's a very leveraged impactful, um, you know, part of, part of your job. And so you end up uh, deciding to create a centralized function that, that gives you a lot more leverage across that helps you standardize, gives you a lot more leverage, gets, you know, every team enabled on it. Um, and so that, that's where we've, we've seen success again. And so I think, you know, in the case you were just going through, I think, my expectation is that like you get a chief data officer or someone whose job it is to centralize the data uh, within the organization and that that person is responsible uh, for driving it. And they may roll up to product, they may roll up to uh, engineering, they may roll up to marketing, you know, they may roll up somewhere else. It really depends on uh, the company and the circumstance, but you know, that like that, that I'm less religious about, like I've seen all cases. I can tell you lots of organizations where we roll it to product and it works well. I can, Tell you lots where we roll up to engineering um, or we roll up to ops, um, but it's it's just okay. You need someone whose job it is to not just enable their own function, but enable the the functions uh, across the company. Awesome. Um, pivoting a little bit to kind of your entrepreneurial journey, and you talked a little bit about culture within your customers. I'm curious to think a lo- to understand a little bit how you think about culture in company building. You know, you've sort of started this company you know, in the digital slash product slash data space, uh, uh, kind of changed over time. What's, I'm curious, how do you think about the role of values um, for your company and how, how have your values changed over time at all? Have they remained the same? Yeah, it's, that's a super hard one because, and I think it's incredibly important because at the rate a company grows, I mean, we're growing, you know, we, we grew 60% last year um, in terms of revenue. And so when you're growing that fast, that means most of the people that you have at the company are really new. So the question is, how do you keep consistency in who you are and what your edge is and what you're trying to do? And that's where values come in. So our values have always been the same at Amplitude. Um, you know, we have three cultural values, humility, ownership, and growth mindset that form the basis for the expectations for how we expect people to behave towards one another and as teammates um, and how they show up at Amplitude. Um, incredibly important when we have someone who's not a cultural fit, you know, that's always the the gap and that's the reason why. And, you know, that's what we're looking for, you know, in the, in the interview process. In terms of sc- scaling, it is incredibly hard though. And so this is where I, I don't have a perfect answer on it. I think, you know, it's easy for me to, I think a lot of companies set those cultural values, but it's really in how you set up the system. And so how do you put in the, like, I can get up there and say, Hey, you know, we're going to be humble and we're going to take ownership as a company. And that will maybe change people 5%. Um, but the real, the real driver for it becomes how do you set up the incentive systems around people? And so, um, you know, and this is where we put a, a bunch of thought into. So I'm always thinking about that when I interview. So how do you be very explicit about interview interviewing for it and soliciting examples for it, um, you know, from people that you hire and my, you know, I'm always interviewing new leaders at Amplitude. And so that's a really big lever there for me. Um, I think how you promote. So in our performance review process, we have questions that ask specifically around, you know, how is this person embodied or not embodied humility, ownership and growth mindset. And so that's, that's people know as part of the expectation process. So, so we talk about, we celebrate people who have exemplified those values. And then, yeah, when, when someone's not working out culturally, we bring it back to that. And so I think when you do that and you embed it in the systems of a company, you get really, you, that, that's really where it takes effect. And that's where you really see people say, okay, hey, you're serious about it. I will say it is a lot harder with, you know, being mostly remote these days and coronavirus and everything else. And so that gets really hard to, to scale and that puts even more reliance on 
creating the systems where you're explicit about um, those values. You know, it's also like, how do you get leaders to consistently call it out? That's also another, like I can call it out, you know, with people, but how do you get other leaders to, to do that too? Um, especially, you know, when you get lots of people from, from different backgrounds. And so, uh, you know, I, I think it's incredibly important in that, like, that's the one thing that remains consistent and scales with the company. Like the cultural part has always been the same since the start. Um, and that, that tone comes from the top. And that's the one thing that seems consistent as the products change, the markets change, the customers change, the people on Amplitude change, the culture part is the one part that stays consistent. Um, and it's super important to, to do so as, uh, you know, as you scale, because otherwise there's no foundation for you to, to, to build off of over time. So question before we jump into the, the rapid fire questions, I'll let Bar do, but my, my final question to you is about your own transformation as a, as a leader. Um, it takes a very different skill set to uh, invent something than to take it to market for the first time, to go kind of zero to one, to get your first customers in, um, and then, you know, very, very different to build systems that actually scale culture over time. Um, so what... What have you done to scale yourself with the business as it scaled? What part has been the most difficult and what are the things that you are not good at? Um, I, so it's so hard. You know, you're, you're trying to keep up with this thing that's growing so fast and it's, it's hard. It's hard. There's, there's kind of no way around it. So I think there's two jobs that you have to have as CEO. One is saying where the company's going and then the other is to choose the leaders in the company. I've always been really, really clear in my head on the first one about what the opportunity is for us and how we get after it and where we need to go. Um, and so that, you know, that one's kind of always come more naturally to me. Um, the people stuff is always hard. So how do you be clear about what sort of people are needed, what leaders are needed as you scale? Because that's how you scale the culture and that's how you scale everything else about the business. And the problem is that criteria constantly changes over time. And so, you know, if you're growing, say, 50% year on year, then, you know, you need 50% more leadership every single year. Um, and so what does that leadership look like and how do you get it? And, and all like that's that's really, really hard to do well. And, you know, something that, um, yeah, that like I think a lot about um, and I constantly am like really focused on trying to get right. Um, in terms of, you know, help on it, you know, we've been I've been very lucky. You know, we work with some phenomenal investors and. Um, you know, Eric Vistria at Benchmark and Pat Grady at Sequoia and a bunch of other folks and on the board and around the table that have been just phenomenal advisors. Um, and so that's always been a huge help getting perspective from, you know, folks who have seen lots of other companies and seen it at later stages. Um, you know, I, I'd say another one is, um, you know, I have an executive coach. That's always very helpful. I highly recommend uh, everyone get one. Um, you know, they're not often talked about, you know, you, but um, like they're in, most, most, most great leaders I know work with one. Uh, it really does help clarify your thinking and give you kind of more perspective on what you're, what you're doing and how you're doing it as a leader. Um, so I think that's another one, you know, you're, yeah, you're just going to make a lot of mistakes on it. Like, I don't, I don't know how to say it other than that. Um, one of the things that I would say I've not been as good on that I am focused on more now is like, how are you constantly meeting talent outside the business and bringing new talent and leadership in? Um, and so that's something I'd highly recommend that, uh, you know, as particularly as CEO, you have to spend a lot of time on. So you're always getting perspective, even if you're not actively searching for a role, um, spending a significant amount of your time talking to other people outside the business to gain perspective on what great looks like in a bunch of different functions as you continue to scale. That's super important. You know, you should probably, you should 
always be spending like at least a third of your time doing that. Um, you know, whether you're recruiting actively for a role or not. Um, and so, cause there's no other way to, to, you know, like you can try to learn it from first principles, but it's much, much faster if you bootstrap off of uh, someone's existing knowledge, you know, the, a lot of these problems on scaling an organization and creating a successful company have been figured out before. Um, and so, you know, that, that's an area that I think, you know, I recommend people spending time on and I don't think I've spent enough. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really hard problem. I feel like we could ask you a hundred additional questions. Um, but with just a few minutes left, um, we'll do some rapid fire questions. Um, are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> What's your favorite book? Hmm. There's this book I read called uh, Talent is Overrated that convinced me that it was less about being talented and more about sticking with a problem for a long enough period of time. So that's what convinced me to, to build a company. So I highly recommend it. I love that. Yeah. Uh, I'll take a read. Um, what podcast do you listen to? Uh, besides your guys' podcast, of course. Um, oh, there's a, there's a bunch, you know, I, I love Patrick O'Shaughnessy, um, you know, who, uh, he does invest like the best. Um, uh, you know, I think he's, he's just talked to such a wide array of folks in the ecosystem that there's just so many great perspectives where you hear, uh, the deep stories on, you know, what, what someone's done. I think, um, you know, Harry Stebbings, um, you know, has, has been great. You know, I've, I've, uh, you know, he, he's, he's, you know, gotten to a lot of the who's who within the ecosystem. So, uh, but I, I don't, I don't get to listen to podcasts regularly as much. So I'm, <laughs> I'm not going to give you any crazy cool recommendations. What was your pandemic TV binge? Oh, so many, um, watching the expanse. I don't know. It's a sci-fi show. I don't know if you guys are familiar with it, but, um, yeah, it was pretty good. Um, they just had the sixth season, which was awesome and just wrapped up the series. Um, that was good. Um, what else did we see? We were watching, you know, my, my wife and I were watching the crown for a while on Netflix. Um, but then we got to like season three or season four with like all the stuff between princess Diana and Prince Charles. And you just like, you, you just watch it and you just like hate everyone in the show. They even make you not like princess Diana, which I don't even know how, how it does, <laughs> but you're just like, wow, everyone here is just terrible. And there's all the horrible things that, that are coming to them. Um, cause you're just like, this is like the opposite of like good leadership. No one's willing to take a stand for what they think is right. <laughs> and so I, we stopped watching that after a while. I actually, Spencer, do you know what I find so fascinating is I think the reason why the crown has been so long lasting is because they don't take a stance. <laughs> you know, the first two seasons I actually respected because it was a lot about like Elizabeth, not j realizing that she just didn't have to listen. Like she didn't always have to listen to, you know, what her advisors were telling her to do. Right. She'd actually decide, Hey, no, I think this is the right thing. or I want to lead in this way. And I thought that was, I thought that was a great story, but then when you get into like, you know, the next generation, you're just like, Oh, <laughs> no, they're not as good. So, yeah. Awesome. Last one. If you could have dinner with anyone that are alive, who would it be? Um, oh my goodness. So I'll, I'll pick a personal one and then I'll pick a historical, you know, personal one would be uh, my grandmother. Um, you know, she, uh, she raised me up until I was, uh, age of 10 and then went back. She never spoke, spoke English, but, uh, and never knew how to read and write, but, uh, was a huge part of our family growing up and, you know, ended up moving back to Malaysia and then, uh, passed away, um, when I was in college. Um, you know, and I, I just, yeah, just, uh, really miss talking to her and, you know, love to, yeah, just have so many questions about her growing up and, you know, what life was like for her and, you know, would love to share, you know, what I'm doing with her too. Um, so that for sure would, would be my number one choice. Um, in terms of historical uh, folks, 
you know, the, the person I've always respected a ton just in terms of company building was, is, is Bill Gates is the early days of Microsoft. Microsoft was just so dominant, you know, for a good 20 year period, they were just, you, you couldn't beat them in the tech industry. It doesn't matter like what market you were in, what product you were in, they would just out innovate and out execute you. And it was just relentless. And the fact that they did that while scale, like, you know, they started in compilers and then they did operating systems and then they did, uh, you know, and then they did applications and then they did servers, like they did all this stuff. They just dominated industry after industry so consistently with great product um, execution. And they didn't always have the best, most perfect product, but like they just did great. It's just like consistent, great execution across so many different areas. And to create a company that does that is just incredibly impressive. Um, and so there's so much about that, you know, just in terms of learning from the early days of of what they did to, to set that up right there that, you know, I just, you know, I just appreciate understanding more. Thanks for sharing, Spencer. This was awesome. Appreciate you spending the time with us. Yeah, for sure. Bar. Yeah, for sure. Like, you know, it's, 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 it's been, this has been fun. No, this is great. Thanks for listening to Category Makers and Wallbreakers with Anda Gonska and Bar Moses. Anda is co-founder and CEO of Notch, the content intelligence platform that enables brands to connect their digital content investments to business outcomes. Bar Moses is co-founder and CEO of Monte Carlo, with a mission to accelerate the world's adoption of data by reducing data downtime. This episode was produced by Doug Ray. Visit notch.com, that's K-N-O-T-C-H.com for more information and to listen to more episodes. Thank you.